welcome everyone to the Cato Institute, everyone here in the Hayek Auditorium, uh, everybody watching us online and following along with the conversation on Twitter using hashtag WWFSchool. That is hashtag WWFSchool. By the way, that hashtag, again, hashtag WWFSchool, is also used for all our public schooling conflict tweets. Uh, and just so you know, we've just upgraded the public schooling battle map. Uh, it now has a latest conflict section. And uh, you can see the Twitter feed of everybody using hashtag WWFSchool. Uh, and we also now have a new battle map Facebook page. So look for that next time you are on Facebook. Uh, I am Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at Cato, and I will be your facilitator for today, not your moderator, facilitator. So why am I saying facilitator? Uh, because we're going to uh, tackle today a pretty controversial, pretty sensitive, kind of delicate topic. Should private schools, especially uh, serving students that receive some sort of government funding, for uh, likely a voucher to go to that private, private school, should they be able to turn some students away? Uh, and because this is a, uh, a delicate uh, topic, uh, I want to have a very open discussion. So unlike a traditional moderator where you know, I'll, I'll direct everybody to speak, and then I'll have Q&A, and then I'll turn to you in the audience, and I'll say very sternly, only ask a question, and then I let you do whatever you want because I can't stop anybody. Um, instead of running Q&A like that, uh, I'm going to really try and make this into a conversation that encompasses everybody here, as well as everybody on Twitter using hashtag WWFSchool. Uh, and I'm going to try and make it go as smoothly as possible. So how's it going to work? Uh, we're going to start by having our panelists give you know, five minutes or so of their own thoughts on this topic. Um, uh, and then... Um, after they've done that, uh, I'm going to open it up to the audience. Um, uh, I should also say, by the way, that you can get my thoughts on this. You might have seen this as you walked in the, the, in the lobby. Uh, I've written out my thoughts on this. Uh, I'll also probably do some talking, give some of my ideas, but you can read this, pick this up in the lobby if you want to see more of what I have to say on this topic. But anyway, so each person here will get five minutes, uh, and then when they're done, I may say something, uh, but they'll probably have said what I was going to say, in which case I'll just uh, accuse them of stealing my thoughts and then open it to you all. Um, and like I said, we'll take questions and I'll take thoughts. I'm happy to hear what people have to say on this topic. I actually want to hear what everybody here has to say on it. I only ask that, for one thing, uh, you try and stay succinct. So if I get the sense that you're entering into some sort of Shakespearean soliloquy, I will probably say, please uh, stay what you want to say and then we need to move on because we want to be as inclusive, get as many people able to offer their uh, opinions as possible. And also, I, I have no doubt that this will not be a problem with a Cato, Cato audience, but try and keep what you say kind of civil and friendly. You know, I, I don't think anybody here has bad intentions, and so we don't want to start uh, insulting or anything like that. Uh, you know, anybody who's seen the Twitter feed that might come from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, we're going to avoid that sort of conversation. Um, 
Uh, once we get comments or questions, I'm going to let the panelists, if they want, be the first to respond. Um, and then I will move on to the next person with their hand up. And if you have a question, that's great. If you want to respond to what somebody in the audience has already said, that's great, too. Again, just follow my two basic rules. So this is a bit experimental. It's not how we usually run an event. Hopefully, it will go well. Um, you know, it, uh, I'm pretty sure Oprah has been kind of able to pull off something like this. Uh, I don't watch a lot of daytime TV, so I have to say I don't know how successful all these hosts are. But if it does work out uh, pretty well, I will probably, I, maybe, I'll, I'll announce a start of a new book club. It might be called Neil's Book Club. Uh, and I may announce that everybody in the audience gets a free car. I, I probably won't, but I'm. <laughs> uh, and so now uh, I'm going to do a very quick introduction of our <coughs> panelists. Uh, and then we're going to get started right on to the substance of today's discussion. So to my right is Lindsay Burke. She's the director of the Center for Education Policy and the Will Skillman Fellow in Education in the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. And then to my far left, Rabbi A.D. Matson is the National Director of State Relations at Agadith Israel of America. And then finally, Joe McTighe, right here, is the executive director of the Council for American Private Education. So I told you that intro would be quick. It was quick. Lindsay, take it away. Great. Well, I always try to be to the right of Neil, so good start for today's panel. So I, I think it's useful to start off by thinking about sort of a basic idea of what is a private school? What's a good sort of working definition of what we mean when we talk about private schools? A private school is a community that orients itself around a common purpose. They are often built around a belief system that sometimes includes, and often includes, codes of conduct. Some private schools have a mission to provide students an education of a single sex, all girls, all boys schools. Other private schools operate around a certain pedagogy. Montessori schools are a good example. And some are designed to serve children that only have specific special needs. So schools designed just to serve students who have autism, for example. And of course, there are still others that operate according to deeply held religious beliefs. For example, providing a Catholic education to students. But in each case, these communities are clear upfront about who they are and the type of education that they provide. And they are clear with parents up front about that mission and orientation. And if their educational mission aligns with the values that parents seek to reinforce in their own children, families can then select into those schools and in many cases do so precisely because of the value system that the school operates under and because those beliefs align with their own. So it's like other nonprofit institutions and private institutions, private schools are simply providing their education in exchange for tuition, and then families then have the choice to pay for the education that those schools provide. These are private schools that parents have specifically sought out because of their mission and who they are as an organization. So in my opinion, that's sort of a good working definition of what a private school is and what it means to operate as a mission-specific school. So if that is the working definition, I think that from there some basic principles then apply. Private schools as private entities should be able to set their admission standards and retain a code of conduct that reflects their values. And 
This is simply because living in a free society means allowing for this kind of pluralism, which in, turns, in turn means having a variety of schools that specialize. If private schools cannot operate according to their beliefs, then we don't have meaningful school choice anymore, whether or not it's publicly funded or otherwise. Ridding ourselves of this type of diversity rids us of the core of what America is. So what does this mean exactly for the issue at hand? This event asks whether schools should be required to serve everyone. This issue has come up in recent weeks, uh, in particular within a school choice framework. Education Secretary DeVos has been posed similar questions uh, several times over the past few weeks. And you often hear something to the effect of, should a private school that receives public money be able to deny admission to certain students? That's typically the refrain that we hear. And First, I think we should really dispel this myth of public money, right, from the very beginning. I love how Margaret Thatcher explained it. Her stance was the state has no source of money other than the money people earn themselves. There is no such thing as public money, only taxpayers' money. So parents, of course, are taxpayers themselves, and they deserve to be able to direct their money to schools that work for their children. Second, freedom of association is a two-way street, right? If Planned Parenthood has to allow pro-lifers on staff, that undermines their mission. PETA should not be forced to hire a hunter who comes to a job interview donning rabbit furs. The human rights campaign should not have to hire someone who believes in traditional marriage, that it's between one man and one woman. Private entities and nonprofits should be able to operate in a way that supports their missions. And that goes for nonprofits like schools. So a private school, by extension, should be able to operate around a pride theme if they want. And in fact, this is not a hypothetical. I was looking the other day at the Atlanta Pride School, which is a private school that operates in, in Atlanta and has their mission is, quote, to build an inclusive community of LGBTQQIAA-friendly and accepting mentors, business practices, educators, and experts, and that offers a progressive education. That is their mission. It's their prerogative as a private organization to operate according to their values. And parents are free to choose that school. But they should also be free to choose a school that has a historical understanding of marriage. And I have no dog in this fight, but parents do and parents should be able to choose what works for them. The other thing is we know that private schools do a good job when it comes to instilling tolerance and instilling civic values generally. Research consistently finds that private schools increase the political tolerance of children who attend them, and the civic values that, that they hope to enhance do in fact, through all of the empirical evidence we have, tend to be enhanced through private schooling. So the bottom line is this. Reasonable people can disagree about sensitive issues pertaining to conduct, but private schools are communities that are built around a common belief system. Living in a free society requires that we respect the right of private institutions to operate according to their deeply held beliefs, even when we profoundly disagree with their position. But the good news is that allowing for pluralism creates a variety of options, and robust school choice ensures that parents and families are able to pick what works for them, and that they can choose schools that align with their values and their missions. <clears throat>
I can't remember which order we were going to go in. So I, I, think no AD, I think AD is times. next, but right, it doesn't so matter to me. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, Neil. Well, as, uh, as a grandson of Holocaust survivors and a very visible member of a religious minority, I get to think about discrimination more often than I would like, unfortunately. Um, and I was taught that every human being is created in the image of God and has to be treated with dignity. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every school should have to accept every student or every teacher for that matter. I sit on a board, uh, it's an association of non-public schools and represents the full gamut of religious and non-sectarian schools. In many cases, I would probably be excluded from teaching in those schools and my children would be denied admissions. Is that illegal? No. Should it be, is the question Neil has asked us to address. And in the Jewish tradition, I will answer his question by asking another question or two or three. <laughs> so you have a lot of Jewish friends. Um, the first question is, is if discrimination is truly wrong, um, should it make a difference whether or not the school is accepting government funds? Um, if certain forms of discrimination should only be prohibited if they're accepting government funds. At what point is the school considered getting government funding? Uh, Lindsay hinted to it. But let's just say, for example, a private school that has 500 students, and it wants to accept one child who happens to be coming with a form of payment calling a, called a voucher. Is that enough to trigger the full civil rights code? Is the scholarship considered government money? Does it make a difference if it's funded through a tax credit or direct a check, a direct voucher from the state. Why should a voucher be, which was given to the parent to use, be any different than them using a visa or a social security check? Some other questions. My daughters attend a excellent girls, all girls high school. Should parents with a voucher be excluded from that school, um, from sending their daughters to that school simply because the school does not accept boys? I have a background in special education. <clears throat> uh, my colleague at A Good at Israel, Leah Steinberg, has helped thousands of students uh, with special needs attend Jewish private schools. So a few questions in special ed. Is it discrimination for a school that, let's say, specializes in autism? It does not take children of other disabilities. Should that school be excluded from any voucher program? I know one school that only takes students with cochlear implants. They take the kid for a few years, and they send them back to the public or private school they came from, and they're able to be fully integrated into the mainstream classroom. Should that school be excluded from any program because it discriminates against kids with autism? I once heard a superintendent testify in, in a uh, hearing that they were opposed to a voucher program for special needs kids because it's not fair. They have to take the kid with $70,000 annual cost. Okay, well, is it fair to ask the school, uh, a private school, to accept every child, even that child that has $70,000 in annual cost, and only give the parent a $5,000 voucher? Perhaps we should consider uh, fully funding those children so that more schools would accept those uh, children with high costs. And finally, some people have maintained that schools that don't take everyone should not be allowed to take anyone. Okay, do public schools take everyone? Should they be allowed to take anyone? Because if we are honest with ourselves, we can ask a lot of questions about public schools. Uh, for students and staff at public schools, are there protections right now for those with, uh, who identify themselves as LGBT? Do we have our public schools truly accepting of all students with disabilities? I taught in a school, private school, that took all the kids the public school didn't want. 
do public schools currently discriminate against students who don't score high enough on certain admission tests for certain schools? Do public schools discriminate against those who don't win a lottery in schools that are oversubscribed? And do public schools currently discriminate against those who live in certain zip codes, which are usually associated with socioeconomic status? So if we sincerely care about all students, and we truly care about discrimination, perhaps the place to start would be by ensuring that public and public charter schools are not discriminatory and follow the laws. If we truly care about the Constitution, we should protect and strengthen the right to free exercise of religion, which we understand that sometimes other rights conflict with religious rights. It's a real issue. <clears throat> but is requiring non-discrimination actually discriminating against those parents and students who want a full range of choices? And you can try to force religious schools to change, but I can tell you that uh, religions aren't going to change their beliefs or practices because of a voucher program. Instead, you're going to leave parents with fewer options and in, unfortunately, many cases, inferior options. And one final thought, I saw an op-ed this week written by uh, Howard Fuller, Darrell Bradford, and, and Chris Stewart, and the title was Liberating Black Kids from Broken Schools by Any Means Necessary. That's their title, and, and one quote stood out, and I'll end with this. They say that some people believe that vouchers are a threat to democracy, but the real threat to democracy is an uneducated populace. And with that, I yield the floor. <laughs> All right, Joe. Okay. Take us home. So I got an email yesterday from a friend uh, that basically said, you know, the topic you're addressing tomorrow is like walking on eggshells. And I was thinking about that this morning, and I realized I like that simile. I like the fact that we should be approaching this topic as if we are walking on eggshells eggshells, because that means we should approach it sensitively, we should approach it carefully, we should kind of test with our toes whether or not we're on firm ground or on fragile ground with respect to our arguments and the arguments of our opponents, and we should look for paths that will uh, get us around the, the sensitivity. So, uh, and all of that should be done with a great deal of civility and a great deal of mutual respect. So, yeah, I like the fact that uh, we're approaching this as if walking on eggshells better than, uh, say, stomping on grapes, to use another uh, foot food metaphor. Um, by the way, that could be a challenge to the audience. See if they can come up with foot food metaphors for the, I, I for the in, in, their, having, in their comments. We're having lunch. Actually, oh, we're having lunch. So okay, right. No, forget about, forget about that. Right. So uh, anyway, it's it's never a good idea to be uh, arguing in favor of discrimination because you're pretty much usually on the on the losing side of of that argument. But I, to be clear, am arguing in favor of some discrimination. Because, you know, as we all know, some discrimination is invidious and malicious and repulsive. But on the other hand, there's some discrimination that is good. And we've heard some examples from the other panelists. Let me give you uh, a, a couple more. Bronx High School of Science, which is a public school up in New York City, they uh, focus on very high caliber students. And the whole purpose of that school 
is to provide a rigorous and challenging curriculum for these students. Now, if that school were forced to accept all students, it would soon lose its identity. It would soon lose its, its, its purpose. So that's an example of good discrimination. Stanley Carlson Tease, my, my friend who wrote a book, uh, Free to Serve, gives other examples as well. For, ex for example, he talks about uh, the hospital that when looking for a surgeon, discriminates against people who do not have rigorous surgical training. Good discrimination. Or a, a Baptist church that when looking for a pastor, discriminates against rabbis. No offense, AD, but it makes, it makes sense. It's consistent with the purpose, and it's not uh, invidious or arbitrary uh, bigotry or, or bias. When, when people deal with this very sensitive issue, uh, they often forget that there are two sides to the, to the matter. Uh, there is the religious liberty side, and then let's call it the sexual uh, liberty side. So on the one hand, you have the right of individuals to um, ascribe to a belief system and a set of, of tenets and traditions and cultures and to establish communities that uphold those uh, traditions and, and moral codes. And on the other hand, you have people who are f free and have a right to be free with respect to uh, sexual uh, expression. Uh, oftentimes, though, the debate disregards entirely the religious liberty side of, of that and presents it as if it were a one-side-only piece that is trumping everything, everything else. The two sides have to be balanced in a way that is compassionate and, and sensitive and, uh, and respectful. Um, Lindsay alluded to these intentional uh, communities. And um, private schools, just like uh, religious communities themselves, whether mosques or synagogues or churches, are in fact these intentional communities that uh, focus on a particular set of values and traditions and a moral code and, and uh, beliefs and uh, try to uphold uh, that, uh, that entire system. If you want examples of uh, intentional communities, both secular and religious, just look at the membership of CAPE, the Council of American Private Education, which I represent, because we have members that are represent, representing uh, Montessori schools and uh, Waldorf schools and mainline Protestant schools and conservative Christian schools, Catholic, Jewish, uh, Muslim, independent, and they're all over the lot with respect to a lot of the issues that we're, um, that we're discussing today. But the point is, that these schools differ dramatically with respect to not only issues about pedagogy and education, but also about some fundamental questions uh, uh, in life. Why are we here? Where are we going? What are we supposed to be doing with our lives? And these communities have to be able to maintain their integrity and their values and the beliefs. Otherwise, they soon they soon disintegrate. Let me give you a secular example, a Montessori school. Um, a, a Montessori school, if it were required to hire teachers who are not trained in Montessori pedagogy, or if it were required to admit students who uh, come from families that didn't believe in Montessori education and, and, and wanted a more traditional setting, if it were required to do that, it would soon lose its identity 
as a, as a Montessori school. And let's press it. Should a, uh, should a yeshiva have to um, enroll non-Jews or hire uh, Christians in order to teach the Talmud? Of course not, because the institution would soon lose its, uh, its identity. So I think that um, the matter is more easily understood especially with respect to uh, the sexual conduct issues, if we remove, remove sexual behavior from the equation entirely and just look at it as a doctrinal matter, so to speak. So, for example, a Catholic school. I am a Catholic myself, so I can speak to this tradition. Um, <laughs> let's say there were a, uh, a religion teacher in a Catholic school who said, you know, Jesus Christ is a good guy, a kind of savvy political leader, and uh, a fine ethicist, but not the Messiah, not the Lord. Okay, would that school have a right, after taking other intermediary steps, to dismiss a teacher like that? I think most people would say, of course, because it is, after all, a Catholic school. It's, It's constituted to pass on the Catholic faith. That's what parents expect from the school. They don't want a school where people just get up and start spouting off anything they, they want. So, yeah, the school has a right to maintain its integrity as an institution. Now, let's press it to the sexual issues. Let's say same Catholic school, and um, now you have a, a religion teacher who is teaching that They are involved in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, and they don't see anything wrong with that. And in fact, the church is wrong on this issue, and it's got an antiquated and uh, outmoded uh, belief system here. Same exact issue as the teacher in the first instance, and the church and the school have a right to maintain the integrity of the institution uh, by, if all else fails, dismissing a, uh, a teacher like that. Because if they don't maintain the mission and the integrity, they soon disintegrate as, a, as an institution. And by the way, this works both ways. Because let's look at a, um, a more uh, a liberal religious tradition that perhaps supports reproductive rights or supports gay marriage. Would a school like that be able to dismiss a teacher who proclaims, you know, abortion is evil and and sinful and gay marriage is evil and sinful? The answer is yes, they would have that that same right because it would be disruptive of the school, it would be disruptive of the culture, uh, it would be upsetting to the students and staff and whatnot who expect something else from uh, from that school. So uh, this matter uh, works both ways. And by the way, uh, two more points. I know I'm going, I've gone over my time already, I know. But two more points. I and, can throw uh, you out of here because <laughs> we're could, a private institution. <laughs> so, uh, okay, the, um, the, the second to the last point is that none of these schools are trying to impose their beliefs or values on the rest of the world. These are schools that, as, as Lindsay mentioned, they're, they're chosen voluntarily by the families. They just don't want the world, and particularly government, to impose its values on them. They want to remain free to pursue their, uh, their, their mission. And my, my last, and I'll just save the best for last, 
uh, an organization like, like Cato, for example, should it be expected to hire people who don't believe in individual liberties or who, uh, who don't believe in limited government? Or should it be expected to put on forums uh, against, the, um, uh, against free markets? Of course not. We have to be able to uh, maintain our in- integrity and our mission and our values. And I know I went over, and I'm sorry about that, but uh, that's it. Okay. Great. I wasn't actually watching very closely. Oh, good. So okay. I don't know where glad, you are, but glad. since you self-corrected, it's okay. okay. Um, I I, people nodding off, so that's why I thought it. And I said I may or may not say anything. I just want to make two points. I'll try and go under five minutes and then really stick with my plan of opening it up to all of you. I do think it's worth really emphasizing something here, which Lindsay talked about. Remember that what's happening right now is people are being required to fund public schools. So when you talk about vouchers or tax credits or something like that, it's not like you're asking for something special. All you're really doing is saying, let me have some control over the money that I have to use for education. So we sometimes act like the people or the schools that say, we'd really like it if some of that money we have to spend on on education can be used for the education we want. Like they're asking for some special favor. They're not. And then you really have to look at the, the, the status quo. We can't just say, well, there may be some private schools that, that have rules that we don't like that may, may, uh, may not accept all students. Understand what public schooling is. It is. Inequality is inherent to public schooling. It's not how we think of it. That's not the intention, but that's the effect. Ultimately, what we're saying is whoever can accumulate the most political power in a public school is who decides what gets <clears throat> taught. This goes beyond religion, this goes beyond ethnicity, this goes beyond all sorts of, of categories where everything that we're teaching, that our children are being taught, is subject to a political debate and to political power. And uh, Joe used the term impose. That is what's happening. Yes, we have a process, hopefully, where we say we get together democratically and we talk about what we want, but ultimately it's you know, the, in a democratic system, we say, well, maybe the majority decides. But we're also supposed to put individual rights first and foremost. We're supposed to be a free society. And public schooling, because you have political decisions, or, what is, or, or political decisions decide what's taught, is inherently unequal. Um, and you think about it. Often these are sort of zero-sum questions, where if one thing is chosen, some group must lose. The longest-running argument that we probably have, at least that people know about, because you've probably all had to read Inherit the Wind at some point, is evolution versus creationism. What do we teach in the schools? And good people with good motives who just want what they think is best for their kids end up in sort of a death match over what is taught, because you can't teach both that creationism and evolution is true. You have to pick one of them. And so we get into sort of constant conflicts over that. Or you think about, and it was just in the news today because this has been going on since 2010, but it just hit a U.S. district court. In Tucson, Arizona, there has been an ongoing conflict over ethnic studies classes that were geared in particular to Mexican-American kids. And what that community was saying is, we don't get our history taught. We don't get our culture taught. And we would like that taught to our kids, which is completely understandable. 
And what this, uh, people in the school district or other people in the school district, what state uh, officials said was, no, this would be illegally teaching ethnic solidarity. And you can actually see why people say that's bad too, right? The idea of public schools was we were supposed to take diverse people and kind of unify them. But in other words, both sides have totally legitimate arguments, but only one can win. And so we get into these big conflicts. There was a picture today in the news just sort of as they were talking about the background of this court case in Tucson of people chained together in the, uh, in the school board hearing room as they were protesting this. Is this really what we want and how we deliver education, that the default system is one where if you want what you think is best for your kids, you have to protest to the point where you chain yourselves together in the school board building? I don't think so. Um, and then the other... I think less sort of principled, but still very important point is uh, there have been studies, James Coleman did a lot of this, that show that social capital is, and there are lots of different ways of parsing social capital, but in Coleman's vision, the social capital of Catholic schools were why they seem to be very successful, spending much less than public schools. And this doesn't just apply to Catholic schools, it could be any kinds of schools. But when you have a school that has very clear norms of behavior and things that it teaches and people voluntarily accept those things when they come to that school can run much more efficiently and can teach much more effectively than when you say, well, everybody with all sorts of different opinions has, a, has say in this. Often what ends up happening is we have conflict or to avoid conflict in public schools, we go at lowest common denominator instruction that's not very effective. That's not teaching people. So the second thing that I think probably ought to be emphasized here is that allowing people to choose a school and for that school to say, all must accept these things that we stand for, most or, or quite possibly, the research suggests, leads to better academic outcomes because you can much more efficiently move on to the actual instructing of kids, not to mention all the members of that community kind of look out for each other and enforce norms, and they do it without lots of rules and regulations and laws because they say we all voluntarily agree to that. So those were the two points I wanted to throw out there. Now we get to the sort of experimental part where, uh, and do we have our microphones? Because I'll need our, here come our microphone guys. So I'm opening it up, questions, comments, anything anybody wants to say. Again, if, you, if it seems like we're gonna be in like a 20 minute soliloquy, I will probably cut you off. If it seems like you're about to insult somebody, or if you actually do insult somebody, then I'll cut you off. But otherwise, we really do want to have kind of an open discussion. Um, and so I'll let anybody have something they want to say or any questions they want. To. We have our, our first person who is sort of our test subject. So I hope this goes well. <laughs> Hello, uh, my name is Denise Caritas. Uh, I am the executive director of Global Policy Institute based in Washington, DC. Uh, my question is uh, actually, uh, to my idea, it is the uh, both health system, both healthcare and education is the human right, not a commodity. So um, here, everybody knows that the healthcare system is broken in the United States. Only the insurance companies and the pharmacy pharmaceutical companies are happy with this system today. So um, about education system, it is kind of similar in my mind. And if it is. Um, all privatized, not public schools anymore. Um, this question is from Mr. McCluskey. If all schools are private and there are no public schools left, 
Um, can you promise that, can you guarantee that it will not, the education system will not end up as the healthcare system in the United States? I mean, the only happy uh, party will be the school owners. Can you promise that? Well, I'm not prepared to make any promises about what society, put, millions and billions of people acting individually will do. Uh, I, I'm not omniscient, so I can't say for sure what's going to happen. I think, uh, and, and I'm also not a healthcare analyst, but my guess would be people actually wouldn't say that this is the worst possible healthcare system ever. Um, uh, I would liken it to something I do study, which is higher education, which has lots of problems. It's very expensive, but it's actually a system that probably works better than higher education in most other countries because more than other places, we embrace the idea that institutions should have autonomy and people should direct where the money goes. So we have a very high price, sticker price for higher education, but you have really wide variety in what kind of schools you pick. You can go to a community college, you can go to a small private liberal arts college, you can go to a giant um, you know, state research institution, and that seems to work pretty well, relative certainly to other countries. And what I think uh, I, I'm much more comfortable saying than I can promise what will happen in the future is we can look historically in fact, and we can see in this country and England and elsewhere that there was very widespread consumption of education by people of all different economic levels before there was an idea that government should supply schools. Um, and we could do that without all sorts of the conflict and inequality that comes with a system where we say government's going to supply the same thing for everyone. Uh, because invariably what happens is Rich people are the ones who can move to the districts that are good because they can buy a house. Uh, but it really doesn't make sense to say your cost of tuition is the cost of a house. Um, and so, and, and we can look also, uh, we have a book that Cato published called The Beautiful Tree uh, by a guy named James Tooley, who's a researcher, went to some of the poorest parts of the world and found thriving for-profit schools serving the poorest people and doing a better job than the public schools because the people were spending very hard-earned money of their own, and the schools had to satisfy those people to keep themselves in business. Works much better, certainly did in those countries, than the idea of you get paid regardless of whether the people you're supposed to serve are happy. I don't have any uh, promises either, but my vision of, of school choice starts with parents and parents making a decision as to what's the right fit for their particular child. I start with the premise that parents are the child's primary educators. They know the child best, they love the child most, and they're in the best possible position to decide what's going to work for that particular child from a full array of, of options. Uh, and that would include public schools, it includes well, traditional public schools and magnet schools and charter schools and uh, independent schools and religious schools and online schools and on and on and on. And I think you would find in a system like that, if, if it were truly a system that did not penalize people for a particular type of choice, which is what happens now, if you had a system like that, I think you'd find plenty of people that would continue to choose public education because they're they think it's the best fit for their child, and it, and it is the best fit for their child. So, I'm I'm letting I'm for letting all 
kinds of uh, flowers bloom in, in the field of education? We've actually thought about having a panel that basically debated what's worse, healthcare or education, like what <laughs> sectors in worse shape. We and I too. think it would be a good, really, yeah, we should I, do this. I always talk to our healthcare person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but look, I mean, I, I think, also not a health expert, but I think you're right, right? It's the insurance companies that are making out like bandits. Well, what's the corollary in public education? In a lot of places, it's public school administrators that are doing pretty well, and students in a lot of places are not doing very well at all, right? We know that <coughs> there are cities across the country where reading and math outcomes are in the single digits in terms of proficiency, but nobody's really being held accountable. And so to your question about should we privatize it all, I would say kind of, sort of, right? If that ends up being the net outcome because parents are choosing private options, great. But at the end of the day, at least in my opinion right now, it is about giving parents control over public dollars that exist, over their dollars, right? Dispelling this idea of public dollars. But just saying, yes, you know, we are currently funding a system of public education, but really reconceptualizing what public education means, so that delivery can happen anywhere. So fund the kid allow those dollars to follow them to any education option of choice? Uh, well, um, I will say we won't do follow-ups right away, just in case other people have anything, but you did a great job as the <laughs> test subject. So, but if I, oh, and I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna add to, to a couple points. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with the current private school landscape. Um, you know, I can't speak for the future, but right now, and Joe could probably answer it, I'm going to uh, guess that close to 100% of all private schools in this country are, if K-12, are nonprofits. Uh, close. Not close to 100%. Close to 100%. Sure, sure. You know, it's, so we're in the 95 to 100. Right. 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 Um, so as far as the, the when you, you know, you're referring to comparing it to healthcare, it's a very different, uh, to begin with, a, a, a very different market. Um, and, the, and similar to Joe, the private school advocates or non, other school choice advocates that, that we hang out with, or at least most of them, are... Uh, <laughs> You said maybe, kind of, so I don't know. But, uh, but until now, I would have said that we're, no one's trying to privatize uh, the entire system, nor do I think that, would, that would, would, would happen unless we had some major revolution of parents. There are suburban, very wealthy suburban districts that I'm going to guess that most of those parents could afford a private education if they want to. They moved there to buy big homes in a, to go to an excellent public school which has a great reputation and maybe a great football team or whatever the reasons are. It's not because of lack of resources. Um, the, what, what school choice and vouchers have helped is, the low, is, is, is leveling that playing field so that the low-income families who can't choose a school are now able to. Um, but there are places where their almost universal choice for certain sectors exists, and yet only 5-10% of the kids who could get a voucher are using it because most people are going to stay in their public schools and probably should. Um, so I don't, I don't fear that as, a, uh, as anything in the near future. I can't speak, f uh, you know, I'm not a prophet. I can't speak what will happen in the future. All right, we're gonna go to the next person. I do, though, have to, I was remiss not to mention that we have uh, Andrew Coulson, who was my boss and predecessor, did a three-part documentary series called School Inc., um, which has been running on PBS. Uh, you can also go to our Cato website and find it. And it actually talks about how powerful profit and free markets can be and are in some place in education. So definitely that helps answer your question and everybody should watch School Inc. So now uh, back to the audience. Remember, you can give a comment, question, whatever you like to do. And so we'll go right here with this, uh, this man right here. Hi, my name is Gil. I'm a junior at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, and I agree with most of what you said. However, I realized that a lot of the examples, either real or hypothetical that you used, 
had to do with um, religious discrimination or also discrimination based on like autism or a special need that a student would have. And I'm curious if you would maintain your positions if a school was engaging in racial discrimination or one of the touchier subjects in that matter. That's definitely a tougher question because First of all, we have an atrocious history of racial discrimination. It is worth noting a lot of that was sort of government-mandated. Uh, Jim Crow laws were the government. Um, but I think what we're mainly talking about here is values and things that people hold. Should a school be able to say, you have to agree with these values um, in order to attend this school? Uh, I think that where this gets, where you can see a room for saying even based on race or ethnicity, a school should be able to say we will or will not take students. As there are, in fact, there was a big argument in New York City back in the, I think it was 60s and 70s. There were predominantly African-American communities who said, we want to have some control over our schools so that we can teach our kids what we want them to learn, not what people in the, you know, in the mayor's office or the school board want them to learn. Um, and we've taught, people have said we want to set up Afrocentric schools. Or again, you can go to Tucson and look at we want classes for Mexican-Americans. And I think we do need to open up, at least talk about, should we let groups set up schools that specifically are working with that particular community? Could be, you know, it could be religious, but it could be ethnic, it could be cultural, all sorts of things. And then the question is, well, do we require those schools to take people who may disagree with that focus. And so I think if we're going to talk about the racial issue, we should have to be very careful about we don't ever want to go back to what we had, and we're still trying to overcome the bad effects of that. But should we, for instance, be able to say, let's have schools that, that try and address the needs of specific communities, and can they say, if you're not interested in that, don't come to this school? because that's what we're about. And if you're not happy with it, you don't really belong here. And we're not gonna spend our time debating with somebody who says, well, we don't really like the purpose for this school. I should, I should point out too that um, racial discrimination in admissions for, uh, well, for not-for-profit schools is already banned by uh, the Supreme Court ruling in the Bob Jones University case in, in 1982, which was ironically, it was, a, it was an IRS-related issue relating to the institution's tax-exempt status, but that's been pretty much established law that nonprofits cannot, uh, nonprofit schools cannot discriminate in admissions with respect to race. Yeah, I, I mean, I would just say you know, racism obviously was and is wrong, and it's purely based on how someone looks, their skin color, outward characteristics that have no rational basis to be tied into policy whatsoever. But I do think that you know, reasonable people of all races can disagree about some of these sensitive issues, like marriage. That's a very good example. Um, but at the end of the day, these are, as Joe said, you know, intentional communities that really are orienting around communal beliefs and values. And I do think it's a, a very different conversation um, to have. Okay, well, I saw you, that lady's hand first, and then we'll go over to you in the middle. So over there. Can I just take a, a moment in the interim to point out that Dick Comer from the Institute for Justice is in the audience and... <laughs> 
if there's any legal issues that come up, and if we say anything stupid up here, Dick, please <laughs> intervene on our behalf, okay? <laughs> so, you didn't think you could just sit there no, and right. be an audience member. He's right? a guy who should be up here, actually. So. Right. <laughs> He's our fact checker. Checker. Yeah. My name is Maria Merkowitz, and I was an attorney with the Office of the Attorney General for the District of Columbia. And I kind of want to disagree with a number of factual things or what you're purporting to be factual, and then I'll get to a question if that's all right. Um, with Lindsay, I don't necessarily agree that all schools have a mission. Some are there to make money. I mean, some schools like Madeira, there's no religious or whatever reason. They exist for the, the rich. Um, with regard to District of Columbia Public Schools, there is no discrimination of sending special need children to private schools. Those special need children who went to the private schools was because the parents sued because allegedly DC hadn't fulfilled certain obligations. But it's not like they weren't allowed entrance in the first place. And when you're talking about vouchers, are you planning on giving fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar vouchers so my five children can go to the best private school that I feel I would like them to go to? And that was my question. Because a voucher of five thousand dollars doesn't get any child into a private school. So in the most recent, and actually thanks to some of the really intrepid work that Andrew Colson did when he was here at Cato, he was able to get the uh, Census Bureau to update numbers on per pupil revenue in DC public schools, which I think as of the most recent finding is close to $35,000 per pupil. Our fundamentally, and this is something I said earlier, fundamentally, in my opinion at least, on the school choice question, we are saying instead of the district schools being entitled to that $35,000, just send it to the parent instead and let it follow the child. Will that be able to enroll them annually at Sidwell Friends? Probably not. But does Sidwell Friends take students on a voucher? They absolutely do, which is they take a few, which you know, I think really demonstrates their commitment to having an inclusive um, uh, community in their school as well. But for many families, that will make the difference for them to be able to afford tuition at any school. But even beyond that, if you look across the country, median tuition, particularly at parochial schools across the country, is in the six to $8,000 range. So we're in DC, you know, we think about uh, big numbers and that's certainly the case here. But if we look across the country, it's much, much lower. So for a lot of families, it will make the difference. And if the school can't accept them because there's too many people trying to get into? Well, new schools will open. I mean, this is just, you know, to me, fundamental market theory, right? If you've got kids who are trying to bang down the door at a given school because that school's doing such a good job or offering services or products that parents want, they're either, we'll see them expand, open new campuses, et cetera. I mean, this is just what we see bear out in states across the country with choice programs in place. If you want me to address the special ed yeah, question, sure, I guess go ahead. If it was addressed to me, so um, so obviously I'm not familiar with every uh, single case and uh, the way you're explaining it, which is definitely common that parents are suing for due process to, and then this district does have to pay for that private school. Um, so in that case, first of all, there are many situations where um, 
that, that might, you know, that's District Columbia, might not be the case in other districts. But also the fact that the parents are suing for a due process, it's true. It may not be that the school admitted them, but the parents are obviously claiming and the courts are either finding or there's been a settlement that they're not, their needs aren't being addressed as to the needs according to the parents. Um, that itself, it's, is it discrimination in admissions? No, it is not servicing their needs. Um, and it, when people ask, so how is it possible we have a voucher program and they have to sign away the IDEA rights? I've spoken to many parents of kids with special needs. They're happy to sign away their IDEA rights. They feel those rights haven't helped them in the environment they were in. And now they have complete control, in some cases, especially states with ESAs, where they have complete, complete control over that education. They can tailor their education to the needs of their child. That gives them the greatest accountability possible. They're happy to sign those, those away. I do believe that any program that does have that requirement should be clear to the parents of what they're giving away. And the program that I work to draft, there's a statement they have to read and sign that they understand those, those rights and they understand what's what's changing, but as I said earlier, a voucher, uh, to my understanding, is simply a form of payment. So just like a pa parent who unilaterally chooses to send their child to a public, to private school is considerably a parentally placed child and pays out of their pocket, a parent who uses a school voucher to go to take their special needs child somewhere else is a parentally placed child who happens to use a check that is provided by some scholarship program. Uh, I just want to, I'll address one other thing, and then I'm going to do a, a Twitter question, so I'm not ignoring anybody, but I do have to say, uh, so some schools you say are just interested in making money, uh, and so they don't have a mission. Now, the first thing I would guess is that they're not going to say, well, there's certain, there certain groups of kids we won't accept, uh, especially if those kids have money attached to them, as we just heard about D.C. That could be a lot of money if you get your per-pupil district spending. But I, I mean, I, I totally get the point of, well, they don't have a specific thing they're after. Doesn't mean that they, it's not a benefit to them to have people who agree with whatever their academic program happens to be. So if what they're saying is bring the money to us, part of that is we have to kind of earn your business. And that presumably means we provide something you really want. And one way, an important way to do that is you got to have something kind of coherent. And the way you get that is say, look, we're not about religion. We're not about your culture. What we're about is getting you the best reading scores you can. And the way we're going to do that is with a phonics-based program. And then we're going to go on to reading the great books. And if you don't like that, go somewhere else. Don't tell us we have to change our curriculum. So even a school without a big sort of grand mission would still really benefit from being able to say, we're only going to work with people who accept our model for delivering education. Now, I, and I think, this, I think this Twitter question may be sort of similar. I'll pose it all to you all, and then if anybody else wants to answer it. Um, I won't say who this person is on Twitter, but if they're, I assume they're watching, hello, you'll know who you are. Um, can we call the free market private school system truly, quote unquote, free when they don't have the capacity to accept qualified applicants? Yeah, I, th I think Lindsay's already addressed that, uh, that issue. And the market's going to take care of itself, or should take care of itself. It's just basic economic theory that the market should respond to the demand. Yeah, and it's, it's a chicken and egg problem, right? Right now, all the resources are tied up in government-run district systems. Free <laughs> up, you know, the 90% or whatever it is, free it up, allow families to choose. And I, I promise you, we will see schools respond. Yeah, my, my kids' school, we had 150 kids 10 years ago. We have 300 kids now. Uh, the school last year was on 
three campuses and it might be trailers that have to be added and yeah. looking at a new uh, expansion. But again, speak for all schools, but if there is demand um, and we have a mission to educate them, we will tr do our best to uh, expand. All right, so back, back to the audience. Yes, right here. Oh, no, sorry. Behind you first, because he was up first. Then, then we'll get the fair is fair. Yeah, I'm trying to go in order. I didn't say I'm good at this. No. I'm just trying the best I can. So I just, I think I just have like a few points and, and kind of questions. And first of all, I think about the free market. Um, the, the fact that the market will fix itself doesn't necessarily mean that every, like in the process of it fixing itself, every single um, school that enters the market is going to be significantly better than the last. Right. So we are going to have schools that are significantly worse, and we are seeing this right now with charter schools, right? Mm -hmm. So we see, obviously this isn't the case with every charter school, but we see a lot of schools that are doing a disservice to our students by the, the lack of accountability, first of all, which is also an issue that you all talked about, and the fact that the test scores just aren't there. And I, I don't know, that's a different conversation as to, to what extent we should value test scores. So that's just something that I'd like every single one of us to, to kind of think about. Um, another thing is you, or someone mentioned, I can't exactly remember whom, but uh, someone mentioned that it isn't calling in special favors to ask for specific tax money to go to a specific, I don't know, cause, right? So what I was wondering is what if I'm a pacifist and I say I cannot, in my goodwill, have my tax money go to defense spending. Isn't that the same scenario? And should it, at that point, should we all just have autonomy as to where we want this uh, uh, tax money, not public money, um, go? And again, that's just something to, to kind of think about because if we kind of want to expand on that, then we're having these problems of, again, self-liberty and, and autonomy that just can't be met everywhere. Um, and then something else I wanted to mention is the, the, the um, point about affirmative action. Someone said that, it isn't, that it's totally different, like a different conversation to have, but I don't think so because every single one of you has said that um, identity is important in, in these institutions, and I completely agree with you in that regard. And if, if we're trying to keep it, and to be true to that, and we're trying to say every school, private or, or public, is free to withhold or to entertain whatever identity they desire, shouldn't we let them carry that out? And if that means let's have every college reflect the population of the United States, and why aren't we looking at that specific question? Why do we have to look at um, accessibility in terms of opportunity and the socioeconomic status um, question that we've you know, kind of been beating around the bush on? Um, because even that doesn't help, right? Because there are, and I know you guys are all like, you know, into research and all of that. Um, <laughs> I, I am as well. So I, I, can't, I don't know at the top of my head who um, the researcher is for this. But there is um, a, a, like a big new research thing on privileged, privileged student bias, and that focuses more on socioeconomic status. And this is regardless of race, so I'm not even talking about race anymore. But are we doing a disservice to students by allowing them the opportunity to get vouchers to go to these private schools when even the, the low socioeconomic students won't be able to completely assimilate into these cultures and entertain these identities to, to the best um, in the best manner that the school wants. And this, again, this is not to say anything is racialized. This is to say this is also a problem with socioeconomic status. $5,000 may not do um, a lot to a lot of students. 
And then to some people, it may be a lot, right? But to the lower class people, $5,000 may not even be anything that they consider because the two more thousand dollars that they have to pay is just not something that is present for them at all. There's a lot to unpack. That's a lot of points. Can I I just, (laughs) just going forward, because this is totally experimental, this is not a judgment on you in any way, but maybe we'd better stick with maybe one comment or one question each time, because I can't process it all. Um, No problem, I didn't say any of that beforehand. So, (laughs) no, I'm glad you have a lot of questions and a lot to say, but just going forward, maybe we'd better restricted to that or my mind may blow up. If we split it up, I'd like to respond to the accountability point, which was your your first point. Um, It's interesting because always in these debates, people are trying to take the public school accountability system and apply it to private schools. And I'm from Maryland. We have, of course, the city of Baltimore. City of Baltimore public schools are accountable to the public school district in the city. They're accountable to the state of Maryland. To the extent they take federal funds, they're accountable to the federal government. You got three levels of accountability, public accountability. To what end? To what purpose? What has it accomplished? My contention is that private schools are the most accountable schools in the country. Why? They're immediately accountable to parents. If the school doesn't deliver what parents want, Parents take their business someplace else. And if enough schools, enough parents do that, the school closes down. So that's accountability that is immediate, it is decisive, it is unforgiving. I think we should be talking about making public schools as accountable as private schools rather than the other way around. Totally second that. The only thing Joe got wrong is to put air quotes around accountability when he talks about public schools, right? Because it's true. I mean, who is held accountable for, you know, the 1% of students being proficient in some of these districts, right? I mean, it's, it's no one in the district system from what we can tell. And so I, I would just second what he said. But on the $5,000, I'm not sure where the, the $5,000 Made it up. Okay, perfect. So just, just FYI. On, so it's all over the map. In some places, it is $5,000. Um, the median for students who are receiving an education savings account in Arizona is about $5,000. I think we're closer to $6,000 this year. But it's adjusted based on different needs. So if you're a child with special needs, the median last year was $14,000. And I mean, this is amazing, right? Because that's just 90% of what the state was spending. It's no local dollars and no federal dollars. And these families are accessing that money and, somebody said earlier, completely customizing the educational experience that their child gets. And it's working beautifully for these families. But if you look across the country, voucher amounts, ESA amounts vary uh, pretty dramatically. But it's a reflection, cost of living in the state, uh, different attributes of the student, if, they're, if they have special needs or not, et cetera. And Neil, um, so I'll, yes, we could probably hit every one of the five points, maybe over lunch if you're sticking around. I'd be happy to uh, address the rest of them. One point, just you mentioned about test scores and, and look at the research. So Ben Scafferty, Dr. Ben Scafferty, a friend of mine from Georgia, did a study. Uh, it was put out by Freeman Foundation, now called Ed Choice. And they actually polled parents who chose private schools and why they chose the schools. And they uh, had a list of, I don't know, 20, 20 items. Test scores came in at 0%. Education and and aspects of education quite high, but test scores, unstandardized test scores, came out at 0%, which, again, can lead to a whole other discussion about, like you said, what the impact of test scores, and again, doesn't mean that it's not relevant, but just as far as what parents are making their decisions based on and what they're looking for in a school, 
it isn't test scores. And while we're citing our friends, our friend Jay Green has done a lot of really great work on accountability and test scores. He's at the University of Arkansas. And there's good evidence that test scores are not very good predictors of later life outcomes. So your success in a whole right, range of issues. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to talk about, because I think this is always a great point, uh, when we say, well, we should be able to choose where our education money goes, and people say, what if I'm a pacifist, or I just don't like the particular war we seem to be heading towards, should I be able to withdraw my money? I think, I think that that's a very legitimate concern. The one thing I'd say that, or a few things that are different, is defense is sort of one of those kind of true public goods. It's sort of non-rivalrous, non-excludable. You're going to get that defense no matter what. Uh, and we expect people like, look, you're going to benefit from this. We can't keep you from benefiting. I mean, I guess we could throw you out of the country or something. But that's pretty extreme. Education is not the same thing. You can go to a private school and they can say, look, we're going to take some kids. We're not going to take some kids. This is the thing that we're going to teach. We have limits to how many people we can teach. And there is no... There's not a really powerful argument, I don't think, to say, you know, national defense, you say, we've got to marshal all the resources of the country to defend ourselves. In education, we have proven historically, and we continue to do it now with private schools, that people can get education without everybody having to be given it, and certainly given it by one institution. You would say, if we're going to defend the country against another country, there has to be centralized control over the Army and Navy and Air Force. We've proven over and over you don't need that in education. In fact, it's particularly, I think, dangerous to say central control in education because you're talking about the minds of individual children. We should never say that what we want to see happen in society is that through some sort of central control, we decide how every child will be raised and what they will think and what they will believe. And so I think they're actually quite different things, although your point, I think, is really a powerful one, which is that I'm being compelled to, to spend money or have my money taken for something I may think is immoral with national defense. The difference is national defense much more inherently has to be something done at a centrally coordinated national level than education does. Education, we've proven, can be something that is highly decentralized, and we really should want it to be highly decentralized because we just don't agree on what values people should be taught. We don't agree even, even on facts and figures about all sorts of different things. And if we really want a pluralist society, which I think we do, we've got to let people choose the education they think is best for their kids. And so with that, I keep monopolizing all the time, which is totally a violation of my own rules. So in the back, uh, and then we'll, we'll head to the front. But, about as far back, here comes, there you go, keep going. She's waving. <laughs> Hi, thank you. My name is Mandy Book. I'm uh, trained as an attorney, but I'm here because I am a uh, patron of public schools, or excuse me, private schools for a very, very long time now, and will still be for a very long time more, I think. Mm -hmm. um, two, two thoughts for you and would be interested in your opinions. Um, the first one is uh, sometimes in our home we talk about the so-called Stafford effect and what might happen if uh, maybe you folks are familiar, you know, federal Stafford loans are available for college education, and it seems like at all the fine universities, the tuition increased by precisely the amount of money, I think it's 18.5, that one can borrow under the Stafford program. Um, so I wonder how you would feel about a proposal that included a school who accepts voucher money being willing to not raise the tuition when they do that, or, or some sort of mechanism for kind of keeping a lid on that. 
Um, and the second thing is, and you touched on this just a little bit a moment ago, um, this idea that we differ very greatly on how we want to educate our children. I, sometimes I feel that this conversation is very much a part of our culture war that's ongoing. And I feel that there's a, a branch of folks who very much their opposition to vouchers is part of their desire to mainstream all sorts of things that various people don't agree with. And uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on that and what might be the, the path forward with regard to that. Well, sorry. Yeah, well, okay, I'll, I'll respond to the first, uh, the, to the first point, um, which is, because it, it, it brings up an interesting dichotomy that we have in our, in our society. Uh, people get all kinds of apoplectic when we talk about choice and vouchers at the K through 12 level but it's completely accepted. It's without a blink when we talk about it at the, at the post-secondary level. And we have arguably uh, perhaps the best higher education system in the, in the world. But people can take their Stafford loans or their Pell Grants or uh, their Hope Scholarships, whatever it is, and uh, apply them to Yale University or Notre Dame or Yeshiva or City University of New York and nobody blinks an eye about, uh, about that. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think we should have a consistent policy with respect to K through 16, I guess you'd, you'd call it. Uh, but you're right about um, monies driving tuition at the higher education level, and we've got to be creative about making sure that that doesn't happen at the at the K through 12 level, or it doesn't continue to happen at the higher education <laughs> level as well. And Lindsay. <laughs> we're, we're laughing because we are already so creative when it comes to how we finance this. And this is where, I know I talk about education savings accounts all day, every day, until I'm blue in the face, but this really is, I think, partially a response to some of the concerns, even if that wasn't the intention from the, the get-go. But you're right. I mean, we have public subsidies in higher ed, and we have seen per-pupil expenditures <laughs> inflate just at astronomical rates since the 1980s. So how can we ensure that this doesn't happen when we free up dollars at the K-12 level to follow students to, to private options of choice? And that is where I think ESAs play a really important role. If you think about, I'll steal our friend Matt Ladner's analogy, if you think about a voucher, it's a coupon to pay tuition at a single private school of choice. And that's great, and states should do it, but that's where the flexibility ends. And in some cases, lo and behold, voucher amounts, maybe $10,000, you start to see private school tuition creep up to about the voucher amount. So there is an argument that they could create a, a price floor. With ESAs, the money is going directly to the parent in the form of a parent-controlled account. In the case of Arizona, they get, as I mentioned earlier, 90% of their state per pupil funding. But what is unique is that parents can direct every single dollar in that account. So instead of being a coupon, it's now an Amazon gift card where you can direct dollars to all sorts of options, private school tuition, online learning if you need special education, therapies and services, you can hire private tutors. So that's something that I think is an inherent facet of ESAs that help hedge against that inflation. But even more importantly, the aspect of an ESA that you can roll over unused dollars year to year. So a parent actually has incentive not only to find something that works, but to find it at a good value because they know that they can save unused dollars and roll it over. Many parents recognize that K-12 education gets more expensive as a student progresses through the years and into high school. 
They can save those dollars for future expenses in high school, can even save it for college down the road. So that's a, a unique design feature of ESAs. And I've done uh, research with Jonathan Butcher at Goldwater over the years, and we're able to see that over time, ESAs don't, and this isn't disparaging against vouchers, but they don't turn into vouchers over time either, that parents continue to really uh, prize that unique design facet that allows them to customize. And the last thing I'll say, the difference too on K-12 and higher ed is that as much as you might search the U.S. Constitution for education, you just won't find it. And in state constitutions, you often do find some level of education, and most, in fact. And so there is, I think, an argument at the, the state level why we fund it through public dollars, but why that argument breaks down a bit once we start talking higher ed and, and above. Okay, I'll just say a great cost question and great answer. Thank you. Um, but yes, that always comes up, and I think that your answer was great too, which is that as terrible as our higher ed system is in terms of cost, what makes it better than our K through 12 system and most other higher ed systems is we are attaching that money to students and we're giving the schools autonomy. But what I, I think is really important about what you said, I mean, the cost thing was very important, but when you talk about a lot of people look at the schools as way to mainstream ideas, I think you're right. And I'm always, you know, in case I haven't mentioned it already, I maintain the Cato Public Schooling Battle Map and use hashtag WWF school if you have battles you want us to know about. But the point of that map is to show, to illustrate, that we are forced into conflict over, in the case of the battle map, very important, either matters of identity or moral values, and only one side can win. And the point is to show we're forcing good people with totally legitimate but differing views into political conflict over what is going to get taught. And I think, because I, I did the map, I was like, well, that is a very powerful idea that everybody's going to really catch on to. And my hope was that there would be journalists, especially every time they cover one of these values-based battles, they're like, ooh, let's go to the battle map and see where else this has happened. And then they'll realize, yes, part of the story is one side wants this, one side wants that. But the deeper story is they are forced to fight with each other in order to get what both think is best for their kids. And I think that the widespread, anytime we have these battles, not just for journalists, but the public is, they don't see the cause of why they're sort of forced into an arena. They just said, I want to win, or I want them to lose, or however it is. And then what's really striking is when you go and you read the history of the people who, who were really the, the formative minds behind American public schooling, that actually, the idea was we have ideas we want to mainstream and some people may not have them and we've got to force them to have this idea. So you're absolutely right. The animating arguments for much of public schooling was we've got to force people to think the way we do. And this should be something that inherently is totally bothersome, problematic, and, and really kind of on some basic level upsets us. But we're so, I think, unaccustomed to thinking about the system and what we be the flaws in the system that we are constantly focused on, we like this side in the debate or we like that side of the debate, and we don't think, how can we just avoid the debate and everybody gets what they want? So with that, we'll go to a, uh, right there, because you had your hand up, then I'm going to go to Twitter. So this uh, lady right here, here comes the microphone. 
Hi, Luann McNabb with the National Council of Teachers of English. Just a few comments. First, Thomas Jefferson was a huge advocate of public education. <laughs> um, but uh, public schools actually are required to accept all students, and they're required to educate them, whether it's sending them to a private school, but they have to finance that education. And third, the testing was mandated on public schools because they were told due to taxpayer accountability for public funds. So these are my concerns. Church schools were used to take to block black children from being admitted, and they try to get tax-exempt status because they were church schools. So if we take public funds we and we move that out to private or religious schools, and we decimate our public schools doing so, what are we going to do? To me, the argument today is we now discriminate in some schools, and we've seen that in certain schools accepting state funding against LGBT students, against children of color, and children of special needs. What is going to happen to those schools? I mean, to those kids, if we do as your scenario. Mm -hmm. Do you want to do that? Okay. Um, we're all trying to figure out who wants to take that, uh, uh, that issue. But um, you, you raise important, important points. And uh, I think it is essential that laws be written in such a way governing uh, voucher programs and school choice programs in general that uh, make certain that there's that balance, as I, as I mentioned earlier, between the rights of the institution and the, um, and the rights of the individual. And I would return, of course, to A.D.'s point earlier about public schools taking all students because there are countless examples of, of public schools that limit their enrollment to certain types of schools of students. I, I led with the example of the Bronx High School of Science. There's you know, high schools of music and art, and there's Stuyvesant High School, and um, there's also you know, magnet schools that have ad admission standards as, as well, and of course charter schools that uh, do not accept all, all students. So um, I think th the the goal is to make sure that every student in the United States has an option that is going to be a good fit for, uh, for that uh, child. And it's not necessarily that one type of school is going to be the answer for addressing that, uh, that need. And I would just yeah. add one thing on the, the research, too. There's good evidence out of Louisiana, which has a statewide voucher program. Um, this is Anna Egalite's research that she's done um, down in Arkansas and now NC State that found that schools, both the sending and receiving schools in a post-voucher environment or a post-assignment environment, in the voucher environment, became more integrated, both for the sending and receiving schools after choice was implemented. So I would just and tell you to look at that research, too. If I can just comment two things. First of all, if there is racial discrimination going on, as, you know, again, the commerce here is the attorney, there is no, uh, that is illegal, whether they're receiving private funds or not, if that's going on, um, then, that should be investigated. I, I do not. I'm not aware of any school that uh, you talk about 50 years ago, perhaps, but uh, in public and private schools. But I, I do not see that happening um, currently. Um, Darrell Bradford, who now gets a second shout out, so I hope he's watching. Um, see if he's tweeted. Socks, Darrell. Socks. Um, so Darrell, for those who know, in the school choice movement, he once got up at a school choice. Um, a school choice event, and said that Uber and Lyft was the greatest thing that happened for the civil rights of black men in Manhattan. 
And I'm like, what's that about? So he explained, he said that uh, he's speaking for himself as a black man trying to hail a cab, yellow cab, on the streets of Manhattan, and the blonde white woman down the block, the cab will drive right by him and pick up uh, the blonde white woman. Um, so I thought it was interesting. Ever since then, I've randomly asked uh, drivers, uh, people who either currently or used to drive yellow cabs, and asked if that's true. And uh, they explained that it was, and uh, not only that, I found out, I was talking to an Uber driver last week, he said that he drove for 15 years yellow cabs, and he said the TLC actually has inspectors that stand at street corners. They have a black inspector on one street corner and a white inspector across the street and see if that happens. If that does happen, they apparently get heavy fines and lose their license. Um, and he said to me, he goes, but it's not only, first of all, it's not only black men. He said, it's Muslim women with hijabs. They're going to Astoria, Queens, or Hasidim, Hasidic Jews going to, and he named a few Brooklyn neighborhoods. He said, the problem is nothing to do with race or religion. It has to do with fares, he said. He said, if we go there with a fare, the people coming back to Manhattan all take um, car service. They don't take fares. I'm, I'm going to come back empty without a fare, so I'm going to lose money on the deal. So that was his explanation, but he said it absolutely happens. So, um, is discrimination alive and well? It definitely happens. Did Uber and Lyft end discrimination as we know it? Nope. Um, but they've helped millions of people get transportation, a basic need, um, and it leveled the playing field. If you have an app, if you have a credit card, you're able to get a ride in cases where you otherwise couldn't do it because choice and competition help the consumer. There's surge pricing for those who travel with ride sharing. I understand that we don't like that. Um, there are places that don't have Uber or Lyft at all. I was in Buffalo last week. Um, apparently, it's coming July 1st. Thank you, uh, New York. And um, there are times there are no drivers nearby. But at the end of the day, you now have more options. It is better than it was before. And to some extent, uh, education is, is similar. School choice has done that for parents. It has leveled the paying field. If I have a voucher, I'm now able to go to a lot, many more schools than I could, bef <coughs> could before. Um, does that mean everybody? has a school they can attend, or that every school accepts every child. We explain some of the, the, the balance, no. Are there places in rural areas there are no private schools, and right now, yeah, that's for sure true. The alternative is the status quo. The alternative is parents having no choices. Uh, because, as I said earlier, if you're gonna try to force all schools to accept everyone, you're gonna end up with inferior and fewer choices, and that doesn't serve parents and doesn't serve kids. So. Um, thank you, Darrell, for his, uh, for his insight uh, on Uber and school choice. One, one last point that I would make on that is the economic segregation that takes place in, in public schools. We have schools in Scarsdale or in Berkeley Heights or name your wealthy suburb where the price of admission to those schools, and these are some of the most exclusive schools in the country, uh, the price of admission to those schools is a multi-million dollar house in, the, in a school district. That's not a school district or a school that accepts all comers. It is a very selective uh, school district. Yeah, and it's not like, I mean, we see massive segregation within the public schooling system. It's been getting worse. Um, and in a way, it's maybe more dishonest because people hide it and they're just like, well, I'm just going to move. Um, and so I don't know that, again, we always have to say, okay, there are going to be things maybe we don't like if people have all sorts of choice. And we could make it illegal, and I'm not saying it should be legal or not. 
But let's not forget what the current system is doing. I mean, it's already massively segregated, in part because you have to buy a house to get into a good district. And again, you've got to look at what's being taught in the schools. There are many school districts now, we have them on the battle map, where people say, well, our kids are learning Eurocentric history. We want them to learn our culture's history. And what the district will often say is, well, but you know, we got to go with what either the textbook company puts out or what the majority wants. And so you're not going to be able to get what you want out of the schools. If we let people choose schools, at the very least, we decentralize it and say, look, I want to have a school that specializes in the needs of whatever group. And now I can be viable because it's not that you are assigned there based on your home address. It's people who want that can choose it. So we have to be very careful of not making you know, the perfect enemy of the good, as people say, and look at things as they exist now and say, is this really better than what we could get even if there are downsides? And there are lots of ways we might be able to mitigate those downsides. So, uh, but we have a little time left. Um, do we have someone else in the audience? Uh, I'm not entirely sure I understand all my Twitter questions, so maybe we'll go <laughs> some in the audience until I can decipher these. Yeah, right there. Hi, my name is Nico Jaya, and I'm an old uh, physical chemist that did most of my life engineering. And I don't really have a specific question. I'll end with a question, but I want to sort of say a few things that I think are like axioms in science. You think of Euclid or thermodynamics. We are all individuals, unprecedented and unrepeatable. Each one of us is a unique instance of human species. Therefore, diversity is built into us inevitably. When somebody said here, diversity unifies us, I disagree. I think what unifies us, our constitution, and the existence of United States, a country. I'm an immigrant. I had to swear to support the constitution. I wholeheartedly do. And that means accepting everything that is established constitutionally. Yeah. Now, I also say principle Parenting, teaching, and managing are uniquely incestuous prof tasks, professions. The goal is, in each case, to get the recipient of your efforts to be the best they can be. I'd like to that re raise that level higher. The purpose of education should be to help and give opportunity to every individual to become the best they can be. You see, I think what you are talking about, what we are talking about are the nibbling details. What we need is somebody, a group like founding fathers that will establish the philosophy of education in this country. And I know it's a politically difficult task, but rationality eventually wins. The issues of religion, education, of evolution versus creation, 
the purpose of the education should not be to teach kids what to do, to teach them how to do. They have their mind to use to maximum ability to sort out what they like and dislike, what appeals to them as an individual. And ultimately, it is, it is up to us to create a system where nobody is allowed to do force on another individual for anything and give each individual the choice. Of course, there's a problem that 30, 40% of kids come from lousy parenting. All that has to be thought through somehow. I'm, I am concerned that we are not thinking, thinking clearly enough and deep enough. That's all. Anybody, that'll, that'll be our last comment. Uh, anybody want to respond to that up here? I'd love to have a conversation over lunch as to what you think that system should look like. I would love Great. to talk to you as long as you are willing to listen. Great. <laughs> Okay, well then, we are actually at the end. Maybe I'll just, you can applaud or whatever you want to do. Um, did uh, Applaud if you liked the format we used today. All right. If you didn't applaud, there's no lunch for you. Um, but if you did, and even if you didn't, because I didn't track everyone, uh, first of all, thanks for coming. And then uh, we will now adjourn for lunch. It, you'll go out these doors up to the second floor, so go up the fancy spiral staircase, and you'll see the, the lunch. It's at the George M. Yeager Conference Center. And also, the restrooms are right up there. You'll see a yellow wall to your right, and they will be there. And so thank you all for coming, and thank you to our panel. Thank you. Thank you.